This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Episode number 210 of the show before the show has arrived. Cole Hamels has a 210 batting average against this season, 19th best in the majors. He is uh, starting tonight against the Philadelphia Phillies for the first time ever. This is so. This is such synergy today, Sam. And isn't it also true that he's starting against Cole Irvin? So this is the first time in Major League history that two Coles are facing off against each really? other. Really? Now I, that kind of surprises me because I feel like that was such a it was such an in vogue '70s and '80s name that at some point, well, and I guess especially like a '90s name, at some point I would have figured there would have been a battle of Coles. Well, I, we are at that point, I guess. Now we're yeah. here. We've arrived. Yeah. We what assumed it would happen, and he, here it is. What a time to be alive. So, hey, welcome into this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com. My name is Tyler Mon. His name is Sam Dykstra. We're talking all things minor league baseball. Thanks for hanging out with us uh, wherever you are and wherever you found us. We are online via all of the pertinent podcasting apps on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, MILB.com slash podcast. You can get in touch with the show at MILB.com slash podcast by looking back through our uh, past episodes and formulating your questions and then sending an email to podcast at MILB.com. You don't have to do the first part of that. I just said the wrong thing and tried to tie it into weaving my way into giving the email address. So um, that's that's radio magic, it's podcasting magic, something like that. Um, let's get started before I uh, screw more things up. Three strikes for this week's episode, our opening segment. We dive into three topics across the minor leagues and topic number one, this week, which of course broke like immediately after we finished recording last week, but another top 10 prospect promoted to the major leagues, the Colorado Rockies calling up shortstop Brendan Rogers, who has made it up to the major leagues uh, for his big league debut, got things started in his big league career on Friday with the Rockies uh, in Philadelphia to take on the Phillies. Only played a couple of games. He has sat out the last two, um, but an interesting scenario for the Rockies in calling up a guy who is uh, right now, you know, going to be asked to play the position that is not his natural position he's not going to get time really as short regularly with Trevor Story being there Uh, but he's also moving into a a spot that's kind of crowded with guys trying to capture the job at second base and uh, so far does have his first major league hit under his belt but not a ton of time out there over his first five six days at the big league level I would imagine he'd be in the lineup again tonight uh, as we're recording this on Wednesday but Sam your thoughts on Brendan Rodgers finally getting the call after this insane start to the season for him with Albuquerque yeah we should kind of list what he's been doing for Albuquerque that justified this move uh, at the time he, he was called up he was hitting 356 the 421 OBP 644 slugging percentage uh, that's an OPS above 1000 he hit nine homers over 135 bats in uh, 35 games so you know he, he he certainly justified this move he was certainly doing well enough to look major league ready obviously uh, everything that's happening at AAA this year comes with the caveat of hey if they're doing 
the best of their careers in slugging departments, it's because hey, uh, they're playing with a new ball there and all that kind of stuff. I get that. But still, Brendan Rodgers overall was looking much better this year at AAA than he was last year. He's kind of, a, in his career, been a slow starter at new levels. Uh, I remember he got called up to AA Hartford a couple of years ago, started out slow there, then came out firing last year. Uh, during time there started out slow at Albuquerque last year now is picking up steam again obviously leading to his major league debut uh, the Rockies trying to compete in what is becoming even more packed NL West than maybe we thought of coming into the year the Padres looking like a little bit more of a wild card contenders than we thought bumping up their rebuild schedule um, but you know this is again one of those situations where all hands are on deck the the Rockies have a second base situation right now who do you play Play at second base they've sent down garrett hampson ryan mcmahon they keep trying to make happen at that position uh hasn't quite fit in so they call up rogers to make it happen but it's it it's another one of those situations too where we clamor for guys to come up they look ready we want them to get their major league chance but if they're not going to get playing time then what's the point uh rogers should be getting regular at bat somewhere um, so, you know, you hope that's in Colorado if they're going to start him there and, and bring him up. Um, you know, he, he's been up since last Friday. The Rockies have played four games. He sat out the last two. Hopefully, like you said, Tyler, he gets a start tonight on Wednesday. And um, otherwise, you know, they're kind of wasting development with him. He needs to continue to grow by getting at bats. This guy is still only, uh, I think, 22 years old. Yeah, 22. He's turning 23 in August. So, you know, this isn't somebody you just bring up to sit as good at, as he would be a bench bat. He needs to develop more. Um, so hopefully he gets those at bats. Um, but Tyler, you, you're obviously much closer to the Colorado situation, although not this week. Uh, but you, you know about the Rocky situation going on right now. And you wrote that scouting report a couple weeks ago about Brendan Rodgers and what other opponents see in him. Um, you know, what do you think about his readiness for when they got called up and and how he fits in this puzzle trying to elbow out McMahon and with Daniel Murphy showing more health, adding, you know, another infield piece there. Uh, how does Rogers kind of fit in here? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Um, the first game that Ryan McMahon got a chance to start after Brendan Rodgers had been called up, he hit two homers. And uh, it's it's strange because we've been told for so long as people who observe the Rockies organization, well, Ryan McMahon doesn't really handle left-handed pitching that well. Maybe it's a circumstance where he and Garrett Hampson can, uh, you know, do a, a platoon type of situation. Obviously, Hampson now is no longer with the Major League Club, but uh, Ryan McMahon actually has been really, really good against left-handed pitching. And uh, that's one of the things that I think has kind of left the Rockies in uh, a bit of a confusing uh, scenario with the second base job. This season against lefties, Ryan McMahon is hitting 353 with a 977 OPS. Against righties, he's hitting 216 with a 690 OPS. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for a left-handed bat to be on the bench and uh, left-handed pitching when he's raking against left-handed pitching and has really struggled to hit righties. Uh, but Brendan Rodgers is a guy who you call up and presumably if you want to juggle something like that, he is the guy who would fit uh, on the opposite side. Um, but, you know, Brendan Rodgers has been really good so far uh, pretty much against everything to the the extent that he's gotten um, time this year. Obviously, a AAA, he was good with everything um, so far this year as a, a big league player, such limited exposure. He's only had the eight at-bats and he's got one hit which was an infield single um, but I'm not really entirely sure how the Rockies are going to make sure that he gets 
every day at bats and he hasn't yet i mean obviously he's got uh uh five days in the major leagues he's played in two of the rockies first four games that he's been in the big league level uh but he's hit everything so far this year like garrett or like uh, ryan mcmahon he's been better against his same handedness against righties he's hitting 372 with an 1147 ops against lefties he's hitting 317 with an 879 ops at the triple a level so all of that is to say <laughs> there is not really a scenario that exists right now in which those two guys are getting regular playing time um what i think the rockies would be best served to do at this stage is to put daniel murphy back on the injured list he's the the first base um hope filler that they've signed as a a guy to kind of be a stopgap maybe until somebody like tyler nevin is ready uh over at first base but he's been really struggling since coming back it seems too prematurely from a uh a hand injury a broken finger um has not been contributing if you put him back in the injured list and you slide ryan mcmahon over to first a place where he played a lot in his minor league career then Brendan Rodgers is your everyday second baseman. Uh, but right now, it's it's kind of interesting, and it seems curious to me that they would make a move to go down and get Brendan Rodgers and bring him up for his major league debut, and he's already sat two of his first four games. Uh, so I'll be really interested to see how this plays out as it goes along. But, uh, you know, they've they've exercised the move the the super two conversation and the the eventual free agency conversation and all that i mean the service time clock has started so we're not going to have that discussion anymore as it comes to brendan rogers uh but getting a guy up who is your your organization's top prospect and has been since he was drafted four years ago you'd think they would have a plan to get him in there virtually every single day and granted it's only been five days it just hasn't been that way as of yet so i'll be interested to see the way that this is managed going forward yeah and uh i mean we thought that too with garrett hampson didn't we like garrett hampson was a top 100 prospect uh, at the time of his call up um and he couldn't find regular bats and you know he doesn't have the offensive ceiling that rogers does he doesn't have the first round pedigree that rogers does but um you know the rockies haven't been wanting for options they just continue to cycle through guys at these certain positions so yeah it'll be really interesting to see what rogers does with this opportunity but at least we're talking about it you know i'd much rather be talking about hey can we get brendan rogers playing time at the major leagues rather than hey this guy just hit three home runs last week when is he gonna get the call Strike two this week. Uh, speaking of big days at the AAA level, Reno had a day the other day uh, that is really kind of one of those Pacific Coast League days. You think, oh, well, PCL's crazy. And also one of those days where you think to yourself, what's going on at AAA so far this year? <laughs> uh, Yasmani Tomas goes out and hits four home runs uh, for the AAA Reno Aces. Uh, in that same game, Matt Caesar hits for the cycle for Reno, uh, and it was a 25-8 to victory for Reno over Tacoma. This was back on Monday. We're recording this on Wednesday. Um, yeah, that's uh, things are a little crazy right now, I think, to say the least, at the AAA level. That game had 33 runs on 39 hits combined, 16 walks, 10 homers. Yasmani Tomas had four of the homers. Matt Caesar with the cycle. Uh, Kevin Crone had six RBIs. He had two home runs. He's got 21 now for the season. Um, we keep having these conversations about what's going on at AAA. That was maybe the weirdest and craziest game at AAA so far this year. And we've already had a lot of conversations about the weirdest and craziest games at AAA so far this year. Yeah, or just the craziest individual performances. I mean, yeah. we talked about Will Benson's four-homer game and saying, like, oh, we haven't seen one like this in a 
quite a while by minor league standards and here we are already talking about a four homer game at least this one's no surprise that it came in a triple a game in the pcl like you mentioned with all the crazy things we've been talking about with the ball and whatnot uh, but one thing I do want to point out about this game that was crazy to me is that, yes, 10 home runs were hit in a game. That's absolutely insane. Anybody who paid for that game got their money's worth by far. But all 10 were by Reno hitters. Like, Tacoma didn't hit any. They are playing with the same ball. Um, so it was really just something that Reno was doing incredibly well that day. Uh, but, yeah, it was kind of funny. I, I was having a meeting, and I, I come back to sit down, and – uh, John Parker, our coworker, turns to me and he's like, you're going to want to know what's going on in Reno. And I'm like, what are you talking about? When I had left, uh, Yasmani Tomas had three homers. And I'm like, OK, well, that's the story of that game. Then he hit the fourth, Crone homered again, Caesar hitting for the cycle. Um, absolutely insane to see all these guys put this together. Kevin Crone, you know, continues to lead the minor league in home runs. He's got 21 homers right now through 43 games. Uh, I tweeted out a, a picture today of just his stats because I was watching one of their games. And uh, Reno pointed out that he was on pace for, I think, 65 home runs and 186 RBIs, um, which is great for him. You know, get, gr- great for Kevin Crone. He's a power hitting first baseman. Kind of reminds me a little bit of what Christian Walker did in that D-back system. Um, just a power first first baseman for a long time, didn't quite put it together. And then some things click later in development than is usual for big time prospects, um, developed a little bit of post prospect hype. Uh, but yeah, this is just, this is something else. And to have it all crystallized into one game, uh, was absolutely insane. Um, and I think Reno like has set a record for most home runs hit over a four game span in the PCL. Uh, you know, we, I was talking to somebody earlier today about how we have to kind of reevaluate strikeouts at, at the major league level. And when guys set records for, hey, this is the most strikeouts by a raised pitcher or, you know, he set the single season record for a pitcher in the AL East. We have to remember that it's happening in an environment where guys are striking out a lot. We're going to have to start doing that with AAA this year. I think we're going to look back at the Bauman home run award and say, like, oh, this is the most home runs hit by a Bauman winner since yada yada. Um, but we're almost going to have to add our own asterisk, not in the actual record books, but anybody time we talk about this, we're going to have to keep that context in play of as crazy as this season has been and as crazy as it has been to see offense jump at the AAA level. We're not seeing the same thing happen to AA, Class A advanced or Class A quite yet. Um, but we just have to always keep it in that context of, yes, this was a crazy game. It was also happening with a moon ball um, that is allowing hitters to take off in ways we have never seen before at the highest levels of the minors. Yeah, the current leaders uh, for home runs in the minor leagues, uh, there are three of them tied at 21, but two of them are in the AAA Mexican League, Jose Vargas and Chris Carter, uh, who are not really included in our stats. So it's Kevin Crone alone with 21 as far as the, the stateside AAA guys. Just keep in mind, last year's Joe Bauman Home Run Award winner was Pete Alonzo, who played for the Binghamton Rumble Ponies in the Las Vegas 51s. He hit 36 home runs. The year before that, it was A.J. Reed who hit 34 for Fresno. Uh, the current minor league leader on may 22nd 
has 21 homers. <laughs> like, is almost two-thirds of the way to that mark, and the season is a month and a half old. Like, that is yeah. insane. Uh, Matt Eddy, a uh, writer for Baseball America, tweeted out a little earlier today, quote, Triple A El Paso has hit 107 home runs this season, putting them on pace to hit 325 in 140 games. The major league record for home runs in a season is held by the 2018 Yankees. They hit 266 in 162 games. <laughs> so, and of course, the people who just are not at all getting the point of this are responding to that tweet like, are you comparing a triple A team to the Yankees? Blah, blah, blah. No, the conversation is about the ball. What is the ball doing to the triple A game? Uh, it's all very interesting. But I think the point that should be emphasized on that game in Reno Tacoma was playing with the same ball that day. They didn't really have the same type of offensive day. Not a, right. not a fun day to be a member of that Rainier staff. Right. And that one thing I, I also just want to point out is that as good as Kevin Crone is doing this year and how we want to say like, oh, you know, this is a result of the ball. He's still doing things like you mentioned with Tacoma that nobody else is doing at that level. Right. Um, he's still got to hit the ball. And, you know, right now. Uh, like you said, he's got those 21 homers in, in 43 games. His career high is 27. Um, so, you know, he is making some strides there. He's probably taking advantage better than anybody else, but he is taking advantage. And when he moves to the major league level, that's the ball he'll be playing with. That's the ultimate goal is to play at the major leagues. So this isn't something like the Cal League where we used to talk about like, oh, well, he, he's doing well there, but all you got to do is put it up into the air at Lancaster and it's going to travel. Um, you know, what he's doing now is going to translate. If he gets that chance, he's going to face tougher pitching. But in terms of, oh, he's going to play with a different ball, that's going to deaden some of these homers. If he makes his loud contact up there as he does here, it's going to travel just as well. So uh, that's interesting, and that's something that I think is going to need longer study is is – as great as this offensive jump has been, is that going to carry to the majors now because they are using that same ball? And that's a question we've asked a lot of guests on this show, specifically pitchers uh, recently, of what it's like to pitch with the ball, what it's like to get used to it, um, and something we're going to be watching all the rest of the season for the months to come. I also do not know, by the way, we've talked so much about how the the big league ball is now used at both AAA levels uh, with the International League and the Pacific Coast League. The Mexican League is technically considered a AAA league. I don't know if that also applies to the Mexican League. Granted, that is already a much more offensively friendly uh, league, and the uh, the two guys who come out of that 21-homer uh, tie of the, the three-way tie for the most in technically the minor leagues. Two of those are from uh, the Mexican League, but I'm not sure if that applies. If anybody knows that, you can get in touch, podcast at MILB.com. Uh, I do not know if that is the case with the Mexican League this year. But yeah, so, no, something I something to I'm, think about. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure either. Um, we usually, you know, it's considered AAA, but I think that's more just because to keep yeah. up the affiliation with Major League Baseball. You there's even no heard- direct affiliations between big league teams and Mexican league teams. It's kind of a, a loose uh, uh, confederation between the two sides. It's not an actual direct affiliate league, but it is considered part of the, the MILB umbrella. Right. Uh, all that type of stuff. But yeah, I don't know that. That's just kind of a curiosity sort of thing. And while we're talking about the Mexican League, I just want to call back to last week's episode when I talked to Trayvon Robinson, uh, and he said something that I think we all knew deep in our hearts, 
but nobody has ever said before. Um, he said he didn't want to go to the Mexican League because that's when you just kind of go there to retire and make money for a couple of years. Um, so I thought that was fascinating um, just to hear somebody on the record say that. You know, that's why he, he played indie ball because indie ball was going to be scouted more heavily and it was much easier to sh- show out and, and, and sign somewhere. And obviously that's worked out for him getting picked up by the Pirates. But um, sometimes when you hear about, you know, so-and-so former major leaguer signs in the Mexican League, it's usually a chance to kind of just get one last paycheck uh, and stay a little bit closer to home maybe than Korea or Japan. And speaking of Japan, some really interesting news uh, out of Nippon Professional Baseball for Strike 3 this week. This was first reported by Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic uh, yesterday, I believe. And there is a terrific story uh, up on ESPN.com today from Jeff Passan. And his lead is, quote, 19-year-old pitcher Carter Stewart is in agreement with the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks of the Japanese Pacific League on a six-year contract worth more than $7 million, a groundbreaking deal that could have long-term ramifications for Major League Baseball's amateur and professional sides, sources told ESPN. This is fascinating because Carter Stewart was taken by Atlanta with the eighth pick in the draft last year out of high school in Florida, but he did not sign after they pulled their signing bonus offer back due to what they said was an injury. Uh, did not come to an agreement with him. He ended up going to play at JUCO. He had requested or reportedly was seeking about $4.5 million, which was actually considerably under the slot value for that pick at eighth overall, which was just under $5 million. The Braves reportedly offered him around $2 million. Um, and so Carter Stewart not only decided that he wasn't going to sign that deal, he was going to go play JUCO ball for a year. He has now decided that he's not going into the draft at all, and he is headed to Japan. He would become the first amateur from the United States to sign a deal and play on that side to get his professional career started. Uh, There's a lot of risk in this. There is a ton of reward in this for Carter Stewart, who's going to get $7 million. Uh, This is a fascinating deal and a fascinating conversation. Just your initial reaction to this, Sam, because there's a ton to unpack here. Yeah, it it really is fascinating. I mean, that was my first thought is we've never really seen somebody do this, um, which I think is really interesting. And and just to use all the options on the table, because the more I think about the draft, the draft by definition is basically limiting. Um, One team picks you. You negotiate with that one team. There's, you know, caps or there's uh, bonus slots that you're supposed to fit in. And, um, you know, they have bonus pools. And if you take up too much of that bonus pool, they don't want to sign you for that much. Um, so Carter Stewart, you know, nobody knows his body necessarily better than he does. But when that wrist injury pops up last year, he thinks he can bounce back. Braves don't want to minimize the risk, don't want to give him the full thing. So he goes into junior college. By all reports, it doesn't sound like he was going back into the first round, uh, you know, through what he showed at junior college, it sounds like he's still got pretty good velocity and a good curveball, um, but that wasn't enough to push him back to where he was with the Braves and to get that bonus. So you, you start exploring your options. You start looking at Japan and an offer comes in for $7 million. $7 million right now is between the third and fourth overall pick. Yeah. Um, you know, the, right now the, the bonus slot money for the White Sox at number three is 7.2 million. Uh, for the Marlins at number four is 6.6 million. Um, so he's somewhere in between there. Now it's, it, I get it, it's different, a bonus versus, you know, $7 million over six years. Um, obviously different animals there. Um, but it's still interesting that 
he's willing to go get that and, and have that money be guaranteed. And then, hey, if things go well after those six years, maybe he can come back to the States and explore options there. Um, you know, it, it, his clock starts right away, I think, in Japan, based on what I've read. This isn't a situation where he's signing for six years, but he goes to the Japanese minors and his service time doesn't start until he gets called up to the Pacific League. Uh, his six years will start the second he starts over there. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's just really interesting to see him explore these options. And now, looking forward to this draft, uh, every year somebody slides. I mean, Matthew Libertor, I think last year, was one of the best pitchers in the draft. He ends up falling to the middle of the first round. The Rays pick him up. Sign him, and, and it's no big deal. Um, I remember back to Jay Groom a couple years ago. He fell a little bit in the draft. Everybody thought he was the number one overall selection or a possibility for that. He falls to the Red Sox. Uh, what what about those guys? Like, if they don't get what they are looking for in the top ten, and they slip to you know the, the middle of the first round, the late first round, do they just start calling up Japanese teams? Is that something that we're going to explore now? It's something we have to at least think about going into the draft now. Um, so this is going to be really, really fascinating to see what kind of repercussions this has, not only on the draft this year, but going forward um, and, and negotiations for CBAs coming up. Um, you know, this is a threat that Major League Baseball has to deal with now when it comes to prime you know, American-based, Puerto Rican-based, Canadian-based talent. If they are going to start looking at other options, there might need to be some reform to the way the draft is done, to the way minor leaguers are compensated, all that kind of stuff. Um, so th it'll be really, really fascinating to see what kind of ripple effects there are here. And to be honest, I mean, from my vantage point, good for Carter Stewart. If you can figure out a way that you're going to make your yourself and your family set up for a generation, for several generations on a $7 million contract, which that's guaranteed. $7 million plus is guaranteed. He's also got some escalating things in that contract that could take it well over that, according to Jeff Passan. Uh, if that is an option that is on the table for you, you're willing to take that leap at 19 years old and go to Japan and play baseball. Uh, good for you, man. And I hope it works for you because I'm all on the side of athletes getting paid the money that they can make and the money that they feel like they deserve uh, because your earning time, your earning period uh, as an athlete is so short already. If you have that window of opportunity, why not take it? Uh, apparently, According to Jeff Passan, um, Scott Boris, who maybe unsurprisingly is Carter Stewart's agent, uh, he, quote, has long tried to use the prospect of taking an amateur player to Japan for leverage purposes, never until Stewart had one come close to agreeing to a deal. Uh, but this is potentially something that really shakes the foundation of the the draft process the amateur process for players who are coming out of school in the united states and canada and puerto rico as you said now there are some things that limit this there are rules in japan uh where those teams are limited to four foreign players per roster at the big league level uh it's the central league and the pacific league in japan which comprise nippon professional baseball like the american league and the national league here you can only have four foreign born players on that roster at any time uh so it's not as though all of a sudden that league is going to go out and start throwing tens of millions of dollars and snapping up every player that they can from the United States, the Dominican Republic or everywhere. Uh, but 
if this is a route for certain players to take a look at and and go over and potentially i mean i know a bunch of guys who have played in japan and you're treated like royalty over there uh and especially in somebody's case like this carter stewart he's going to go over there and be a cultural phenom for this decision and to make that call and put yourself in a spot where you already have this amount of money guaranteed until you're 25 years old what comes out of that next is and again according to Jeff Passan uh, when he gets to 25 he's an international free agent so he doesn't go through the whole process again of going to the minor leagues and, and making minor league money and all that type of stuff theoretically if he goes over to Japan pitches really well in the the Pacific League for a while and then decides at 25 that he wants to come back over here you're looking at pretty big money uh, as long as he's posted by his team in Nippon Professional Baseball. So this really financially is a heck of a smart move for Carter Stewart, uh, but I'll be really interested to see what it does make Major League Baseball look at in terms of how it structures the the draft and the amateur process going forward. I don't think we'll see a glut of these deals. I don't think it's going to be a, a trend for a lot of prospects, but the fact that this potentially opens that door uh, is fascinating. And for Carter Stewart, it's it's not going to be easy to be 19 and, and all of a sudden be thrown into a, a completely different society and culture and uh, a different way of playing baseball and all that type of stuff. But, you know, this is a guy who went to Juco last year and struck out 108 and 74 in a third innings, went 2-2 two and two with a 1.70 ERA for Eastern Florida State College. Uh, he goes over get started there in the the minor leagues in japan and if he makes it up uh you know whether it's this year or next year or whenever it's going to be a fun story to watch and uh i will be very fascinated to see what this means for other guys going forward the other really interesting thing about this is and it's kind of a, a cosmic justice sort of thing the fact that it happened to atlanta because atlanta got waylaid with the the punishment for how it had conducted itself uh under the the previous staff on the international market um with the the signing bonuses and some other things that had gone on that were kind of underhanded and um there was a lot of conversation at the 2017 u18 baseball world cup about jiwan bay the uh shortstop prospect who was signed by the braves and eventually that deal was voided there were so many discussions about how nervous scouts and organizations from the Korea Baseball Organization and Nippon Professional Baseball had become about major league organizations trying to poach young talent before it came through the major levels in those countries. That's their worry, is that eventually all the best talent over there leaves to come to the United States because there are no rules at the U.S. side there's nothing governing how many foreign players are in American organizations. So if big league clubs wanted to go over and just start poaching all that talent, that's what those organizations were worried about. Uh, with Atlanta having gone about things the way it did, now to be the team that doesn't get a deal done with this guy, and then all of a sudden he's gone and he goes to Japan, that is a very, very interesting element to this. And obviously it's a coincidence more than anything, but uh, this is a really, for people who are nerds about the international side of baseball, this is a really interesting step. Yeah, no, and I think that is more of a coincidence, that whole Braves thing, because imagine if, like, Brady Aiken, Brady Aiken did this a couple right. years ago with the Astros and instead of getting drafted by the Indians. Went, and, and Aiken has shown that it is a risk that Carter Stewart is taking. Uh, just because he was a first-round pick doesn't mean that he's guaranteed to have a great career over there and then be wanted at the end of this contract. But he is getting the money um, that would not have been necessarily guaranteed to him if he went into this draft. So, yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on Stewart in ways that we don't normally uh, when it comes to Japanese baseball, I think. 
And with that, we wrap up three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show. This week on the show before the show podcast, the minor league baseball podcast, we're joined by number seven Mets prospect, Anthony Kay, uh, calling in on an off day with double A Binghamton. Anthony, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so I want to kind of dive into why we want you on the show this week uh, and just kind of throw a couple things out there for listeners at home who might not be aware. Uh, you've allowed one earned runner fewer in eight of your nine starts this year. You've got a 1.07 ERA, which is the second best in the Meyer, in all of minor league baseball. Your 0.77 WHIP is third best in minor league baseball. Your 130 average against is the best in minor league baseball. Uh, so I guess I'll I'll lead with how do you think the season's going? Yeah, it's been pretty good. It's been a <laughs> uh, you know uh, attacking hitters, and you know it's been working out pretty well. Yeah, and what do you think has been easily translated about your game to double a because a lot of people talk about this the first big step uh in minor league baseball going from high a you ended last year with 10 starts at st Lucie. now you're jumping up to double a what has allowed your stuff to translate so well here to the eastern league uh i think honestly just getting to a groove you know second year back from tj definitely uh starting to feel back to normal so it definitely uh definitely think that's why yeah and and you mentioned tj there tommy john surgery is something you underwent after you went in the first round in 2016 um what was that moment when you felt like everything was fully back because if you're still getting into a groove i mean you threw 122 and two-thirds innings last year um when did you feel like okay i'm fully 100 percent back to where i was at uconn uh, i think when i got to spring training you know i started to uh you know, ramp it up a little bit and get back to pretty much 100%. And, uh, you know, just everything last year just felt a little bit off, you know, and there was no pain or anything. It was just a little, you know, weird being back on the mound and things like that. And, you know, I think those 122 innings definitely helped me get back into a group for this year. Hmm. And what does that look like? What, when, what kind of marker do you have to, to feel like – everything is clicking now is it a velocity is it a certain feel with the pitch um what is that marker for you to to show you are fully back 100 percent? i think it's just uh being consistent you know there's some uh good outings last year but there are also some bad outings and i think you know the most important part is you know being able to string some good outings together and obviously you've done that here so far um you know what Speaking about jumping to Double A for the first time, um, you know now two stops away from the majors. I I saw an interview the other day where I think Brody Van Wagenen was talking about you. Your your question that's coming up, but what was your kind of welcome to Double A moment uh, so far this year? Um, honestly, I'm not even really sure. I mean, you know, you see your name being thrown around a little bit. And- you know, it's, it's pretty cool to, you know, get noticed by guys like Brody and Mickey and things like that. And, you know, I mean, just being able to pitch at this level is really cool. And um, 
And yeah, let's go back to your kind of draft process because we are getting into the time of the year now where the draft is coming up soon, uh, just a couple of weeks. I think it's on June 3rd this year. Uh, draft obviously was a different situation for you. You get drafted first round out of UConn. Shortly thereafter, you undergo Tommy John surgery. What was that whole process like, the, the months leading up to that, uh, getting picked by the Mets, and then finding out you need surgery? Yeah, so, I mean, I felt it in my uh, last start in college. You know, I mean, it was just a little pain, but I wasn't expecting anything like a torn UCL or anything like that. So when I found out that news, I was a little shocked to hear about that. And then, you know, I mean, it was definitely tough to hear. And, yeah, it was, I think uh, it was definitely a struggle, but it was good to, uh, I feel like it was good to, get the surgery out of the way because I feel like everyone nowadays is getting it. Mm. Yeah, what is that like going through that where your first taste of pro ball isn't on the field, it's immediately rehabbing uh, and and building up to something? Um, How was that different than – I mean, it's the only thing you know, obviously, but what was it like starting pro ball on the sidelines like that? Yeah, it's difficult because, you know, you want to go out there and you want to – show everyone in the organization what what you're capable of doing and you know it kind of just it kind of sucks being having to go right to the DL and you know kind of sit out for a year and a half definitely a little different Hmm. and and what was the discussion like going into 2017 because you you underwent the surgery 2016 usually it's different for everybody it's usually 12 to 14 months sometimes you didn't pitch at all in 2017 um, what were the discussions there about bringing you back, and um, you know what was it like going from not pitching on you know in a minor league stadium at all to 122 innings last year? Yeah, I just wanted to be able to pitch a whole season, be healthy, and you know get through the year and kind of show people that that I'm not like injury prone or things like that. So for the most part, last year was kind of just getting through innings and being able to pitch. And were there any discussions about letting you pitch in 2017? I mean, what was that year like for you? No, they said I was out for the whole year regardless. I think I, I threw probably like two or three innings at instructs, but that was about it. And what do you try to do in those two to three innings? Is it trying to show your back or just go through the process and, and head into the offseason knowing at least you did that? I went out there and I kind of just let it rip. Honestly, <laughs> just, let it, just kind of see how hard I can throw. That's that was the key thing. Just wanted to, you know, kind of get a little bit of confidence back to, you know, tell myself that I'm healthy and, you know, able to pitch again, not baby it. Hmm. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask you: one a couple of days ago, after one of your best starts of the season, uh, you talked to one of our reporters. I think you, you didn't give up a hit over seven innings, and you were talking about how you just kind of put it behind you and you go and watch some video. I think I want to ask about that video aspect because that's such a big part of pitchers' games now in preparation is watching video and what do you, what do you understand about yourself? What are you looking for when you do video review of starts, and how do you kind of carry that over into your side sessions and your bullpens? Yeah, so the first thing I look at is, you know, any mechanical things, if there's anything wrong that I see. And then after that, I kind of go over, you know, the, see some of the bad pitches that I made, you know, like the non-competitive pitches that aren't even in the zone. And then after that, you kind of see, like, 
the pitchers that are in the zone that you miss your spot on to kind of work on, you know, all right, I got to, I missed however many pitches. I got to work on that and get five less or something like that. Hmm. And do you keep like a running notebook, a running diary of this stuff? Is it mostly mental, you know, internal? I mean, how do you keep track of what you need to work on start to start based on these video sessions? Uh, it's pretty much mental. I mean, we go, I go over with, uh, you know, our head coach, Bolsey and pitching coach, Jonathan Harrison. You know, it's, we kind of go over and we talk about it throughout the whole week. And one thing that has developed as part of your pro game has been the curveball to the point where it is one of your best weapons right now. Um, reading stuff about you going into the 2016 draft, it seems like you were mostly fastball changeup. Um, but your curveball, especially the spin rate, stands out to a lot of people. How have you been able to develop that pitch? So when I was coming back for spring training, for 2018 spring training, I uh, I went back to UConn and I was throwing a bullpen. And one of my buddies, John Russell, who's with the Giants now, was there also. And he saw me throw my curveball and he was asking me how I threw it. And... He was like, here, try this. So I did it, and he was like, wow, that was a lot better than, you know, the first one I used through. He's like, maybe you should, you know, keep throwing that. <laughs> and so I, I kept working on it, and, you know, I started to get a little bit more feel for it. And then you know, I got to spring training and threw it to some hitters, and, you know, I noticed a difference right away. Hmm. And, and what were you doing differently? What unlocked that pitch in, in what he show, showed you in Utah? So – I was originally I was kind of just like throwing it out there and just casting it out there, kind of just like as a get me over, and you know that's about all there was to it. And now, when I get out there, I kind of rip it down to my hip, and you know it kind of gets a little bit more uh, spin on it and break. Hmm. And are you are you more of a feel guy? I mean, I mentioned the spin rate. That seems to be something you're around like 3,000 RPMs, I think, with that pitch, which is pretty elite. Um, is that something you look at? Or are you – it sounds like throwing it in spring training, it was mostly off feel. Um, how do you kind of balance those two parts of pitching? Uh, well, first, you want to feel comfortable with the pitch. I mean, regardless of how good a pitch is, if you're not comfortable with it, you're not throwing strikes, and, you know, it's pretty useless, so – and once you get a good feel for it, then you kind of look at the numbers and you're like, all right, that's, that, that'll play. Hmm. And so you kind of just, you know, go off of that. Hmm. All right. Well, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is kind of your history with the Mets. Uh, you were taken in the 29th round of the 2013 draft by the Mets coming out of high school. You are a North Shore, Long Island kid. Um, you know, what is your history with the Mets? What were where were you your or what was your baseball alliance like uh growing up or allegiance rather uh growing up and what was it like getting drafted by a New York team being a Long Island guy? Yeah, it was really cool. I mean, I was a Yankees fan, so you know, it was it was still really cool to be able to get drafted by, you know, a hometown team and you know, eventually whenever the day comes and I make my debut, it'll be really cool to have my friends and family close enough that they can just, you know, drive over and check out the game i think that's probably the coolest part about it how much was your family like willing to buy new hats and like switch over are, are there still yankees fans at christmas parties <laughs> and stuff or how does how did everybody handle that uh, i think we're split now everyone okay. just 
you know, watches both games now. So, you know, it was, it's still really cool because, you know, I mean, we've, we've all been to City Field and Shea Stadium back in the day. And so, you know, to have that, you know, 30, 45 minutes away from our house is just really cool. Mm. Yeah. What were your memories of Shea? Now that I, obviously it's gone with, with City Field, but, um, you know, I feel like everybody has something special tied to that stadium. What do you remember about going back to that? Yeah, no, I loved that park. It was really awesome. And, you know, even City Field now is really, really nice. So, yeah, I mean, both stadiums, I think, were really nice. And, you know, I think it might have Yankee Stadium beat now. Yeah, yeah I, I might agree with you on that one, it, it, at least when it comes to food. I definitely like Yeah, that has a Shake Shack. I'll always take that. Um, oh, yeah, I think it's definitely a better spot to watch a game as a fan for sure there you go win, win over some more fans while, while you're at it uh <laughs> but now having seen both sides of the rivalry both up and close one side especially close with the Mets but growing up a Yankees fan how do you kind of delineate how people choose why they become Yankees fans in the tri-state area versus why they become Mets fans I'm not really sure I think it's kind of just based on you know what you're you're born into you know I think like from where I'm from, it's pretty much split Yankees Mets, so it's it's kind of interesting how people pick. But I think most of it's just from you know what they're raised with. Well, between you and Stephen Matz, both Long Island guys, uh, if if you guys were ever to be paired in a rotation, I think that Long Island would be pretty well tipped towards the Mets side. Um, but one other thing I want to bring up before we let you go, you're coming out of the University of Connecticut um, a while back, not traditionally thought of as a college baseball power, um, may not be quite there right now, but you're talking about a, a school that's developed Matt, uh, Matt Barnes, George Springer, Nick Ahmed, yourself. Um, UConn's definitely a program on the up and up, and I think the last projections had them making the tournament again this year. Um, what has it been like to, to watch that program and have it become pretty well known for baseball beyond just basketball and what the women's and men's teams are doing in that sport? Yeah, no, it's really, it's really fun to watch. You know, my uh, freshman and sophomore year, we weren't able to uh, make a regional, but my junior year we did. And, you know, I, I think it's really special whenever you get that chance to, you know, kind of being able to play postseason baseball and, you know, I think it's really cool what they're doing over there. And, you know, we keep getting guys drafted high, and I think we're just putting, putting them on the map. And, you know, the more it happens, the more peop- more recruits they're going to get. And I think they're going to be a powerhouse pretty soon. Hmm. And, and what did they do to recruit guys this well? I mean, part of it is scouting. Springer was a local guy. I know that you, you're coming out of Long Island, not too far away. But trying to talk guys into playing – D1 baseball in stores, Connecticut, which if anybody's been there, it's, it's farmland outside of UConn itself. <laughs> what are they doing to talk you guys in, into that program and getting you guys to buy in? Uh, I honestly think it's just a name. You know, when I first heard UConn, uh, I was really excited about it. And, you know, once I visited, it's pretty, it's a really nice school. So I was able to, you know, I fell in love with the place the second I stepped on the campus. And uh, next year they're, they're getting a nice turf stadium, so that'll be really uh, that'll be a nice addition for everyone. Getting new locker rooms or anything like that. Hmm. All right. So uh, when you look back to what you were as a UConn pitcher, a lot has happened since. Now you're one of the most dim- dominant minor league pitchers. But what has changed about your game from the moment you stepped on campus there in stores to where you are now in Binghamton? 
Uh, I think I'm a better pitcher now. I think when I first stepped onto UConn, I was kind of just throwing, you know, didn't really have a clue where the ball was going. And I think I can definitely pitch a lot better now than uh, than I can when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. All right, Anthony, we'll, we'll end on this one. Um, we usually promote the, the prospect that joins us with their Twitter account, and yours is at TonyBuckets18. So now I got to ask, <laughs> where did Tony Buckets come from? Uh, and, yeah, w- what's the genesis of that nickname and that Twitter handle? Uh, I think it came from when I was in college. It was uh, kind of just messing around with my friends, and we were playing a video game, the NBA game, and, you know, I don't know how it came about, but eventually people I, – I was pretty good at the game, so eventually everyone just started calling me Tony Buckets. And- <laughs> It kind of just stuck. I was going to say, if you're going to call yourself Tony Buckets in a basketball-based nickname at UConn, you got to be able to back it up somewhere. But video game makes a little bit more sense. I'll give I you can't that. play real basketball, but I can definitely play the video game. So, okay. All right. Well, very <laughs> cool. All right, Anthony K. So thank you so much for joining us. Congrats on all the success so far up there with the Rumble Ponies. And, uh, yeah, we'll continue following you as you climb the chain in the Mets system. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Benjamin Hill joins us for this week's episode of the show before the show. We're talking more things Carolina League as Ben continues to roll out content from his first road trip of the season. Hi, Ben. Hi, Tyler, and hello, Sam. Hi, Ben. Where is he? He's sitting to my left, Sam. Left today. My left. Left. And our listening audience is none the wiser to how long it has been between when I actually asked that question and getting this answer. Uh, thanks, technology. Uh, ben, let's get into this uh, this first story that's up on the site. There's a, a cool story from Fayetteville, the new home of the Fayetteville Woodpeckers for the 2019 season, the newest members of the Carolina League. Uh, you've got a story about Suite One, which is what the, the suite is actually called uh, at that ballpark. Suite One, like Air Force One, um, which is just owned by like some normal folks, like some friends who just wanted to have a suite at the ballpark. This is a really cool story because I think most people look at, at stadiums and suites and, and professional sports and think, oh, well, you got to know somebody who owns a big corporation or something to get those tickets. This is kind of cool. It's not the case in Fayetteville. Yeah, not in this particular instance. You know, we've been talking about uh... – you know, my trip to Fayetteville quite a bit over the last couple of weeks, and this is the last bit of, um, you know, material I'll have from there. And um, I, I wrote about this because I did want to kind of promote the concept, uh, just like you said, Tyler, that suites don't have to be necessarily the do- domain of, you know, corporations or maybe city government entities or what the case may be. Um, this is a brand new stadium, Segra Stadium, has six suites, and um, a couple brothers, uh, McBride and Whitaker. McBride and Whitaker Grannis. Um, it's a very North Carolina name. I was going to say, they are both they both have, like, last names for first names, but anyway. Yeah, McBride and Whitaker. Um, you know, they joined the Founders Club, and a couple of their friends did too, and the Founders Club essentially grants you, um, you know, it locks you in at season ticket prices at inaugural year rates, and it gives you, you know, first look at uh, potential season ticket packages. And so they went to the stadium and, uh, you know, had their eyes on different things. But the the seats they really wanted were sold out. And that led to this idea of, hey, you know, they saw a suite after the the, the options they wanted, uh, you know, were sold out. And they saw a suite. And that led to this idea of 
could we do this? Could we get a suite? So these brothers, uh, along with a couple friends, they went to lunch at the barbecue hut in Fayetteville, started calling all the other friends they knew, said like, hey, do you want to get in on a suite? And if so, like, tell us immediately. And by the end of the afternoon, they got enough people, um, you know, the brothers essentially counting as one person uh, for the purposes of buying the suite. And then they got 10 other guys. Um, and they named it, uh, you know, Pecker Suite. They formed an LLC and and called it uh, Pecker Suite One, as um, as this essentially entity that they could use just to purchase a, su- a suite, uh, a three-year suite lease. Um, so I just thought that was cool. I got wind of that on the first night I was in Fayetteville, and on the second night I went up there and talked to those guys. Um, obviously, that's not something you know every fan could afford, but I think it does kind of uh, it, it makes a suite less elusive, and, and makes it feel like, hey, if you pull your resources together, maybe this is a cool thing you might be able to do with your friends. And one of the things they were saying is, you know, with all these people who uh, have access to the suite, sometimes they won't be able to use their tickets. They give it to some some of their friends, and then new friends come to the suite, and it becomes this rolling social gathering over 70 nights a year and it's not corporate it's just a bunch of dudes who uh who uh, have an llc called pecker suite one and uh i'd like to spread that idea around a little bit and think uh you know maybe there's other minor league markets or you know minor league towns where where that might apply what why the llc i mean this is probably my own naivete when it comes to this kind of stuff but like why not just fork over the money why is it an llc situation well, I know they had to establish a separate banking account because they needed like the payment for the three-year lease, um, you know, through one uh, coherent account, and uh, I think they formed the LLC, you know, through that, and um, I, I don't know the specifics of it, but um, I think it was a way for them to have you know all the money in one place. Um, you know, and do it that way because obviously there's a lot of moving parts when you're you're coordinating that many people and the payments uh, that would be involved, and I'm sure that could lead to a lot of arguments among friends. Yeah, and that I was gonna sort say a lot of Venmo charges, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, PayPal charges. Yeah, so I think it was to kind of clean it up and make the whole uh, process as streamlined as possible, as far as I could tell. Hmm. It's pretty fascinating stuff. That story is up at MILB.com right now. One of Ben's other destinations on the swing through the Virginias and North Carolina uh, was Lynchburg. And Lynchburg is undergoing some changes, uh, both in a a physical sense, uh, the ballpark, and also ownership-wise. Yeah, you know, I was in Lynchburg last in uh, 2015, and um, as it turned out, that was the last year of uh, ownership where they were just owned uh, locally owned by the Lynchburg Baseball Corporation. Uh, the president of the team at the time, Paul Sunwall, had been there for decades. Ronnie Roberts, the GM, had been there for decades. And, you know, I enjoyed it. But, you know, the franchise was in a little bit of uh, uncertainty. Um, if you guys remember, in 2012, um, the Atlanta Braves almost bought the team and uh, to, in order to move it to a new ballpark in Wilmington, but that fell through Wilmington, North Carolina. And um, It would know, have been very there, confusing because then Wilmington, Delaware, and Wilmington, North Carolina would have been in the same league. Yeah, in the same league. And then uh, from there um, – it became, uh, you know, it's a 70-year-old ballpark. It became an issue of, you know, how long is this a viable thing? But the Elmore Group, the Elmore Sports Group, ended up buying the team. And, uh, you know, the Elmore Group owns a lot of other teams, uh, as we've talked about on this podcast before, you know, Rocky Mountain Vibes, um, uh, Amarillo Sod Poodles, and uh, Eugene Emeralds, and several others. And so when they bought the team, they committed to uh, keeping the team in Lynchburg, signed a 10-year stadium lease, and... Um, 
you know, just tried to make it work. So they brought in Chris Jones, who uh, had been in the indie leagues for a few years in Sugarland, the Sugarland Skeeters. And prior to that, he'd been with Lake Elsinore. Uh, you know, so he brought, brought in a different energy to the franchise. They, uh, you know, they maybe were going to rebrand, but then ended up keeping the Hillcats name. They did end up at least changing the logos. Uh, you know, when I visited, you know, it was really interesting to compare and contrast, um, you know, just all the little things that had changed. Um, you know, they changed the netting. The netting at uh, Lynchburg City Stadium used to extend from the roof and it would actually drape over the suites and then over the entirety of the stands and outward like onto the playing field. So it was this like big billowing netting that, that came from the roof and went over the entire thing. Uh, so things like that. They fixed the playing field. Uh, they changed the netting. They redid the parking lot. Um, you know, all bu- a whole bunch of, uh, you know, new concession options. Team stores in a different place. They have a full liquor license now. There's a concourse bar. Um Etc. Etc. The uh, Jeff Raymond, the direct, the team's director of entertainment, um, he has a booth on the concourse, and uh, he does MC and uh, PA announcing from a booth on the concourse that fans are just walking by. Um, that sort of thing. So it was just interesting to see how much it changed. Um, you know, in a pretty small conservative community, uh, in a 70-year-old stadium. Uh, from a team that had been locally owned. And, uh, you know, just over the last three or four years, it's been this rolling series of changes. And I was able to compare and contrast just having been there in 2015 and then being there in 2019. So I got a story on the site just about kind of uh, what's changed uh, in the Lynchburg Hillcats uh, experience. And that'll be up on the site tomorrow. And uh, I'll close out stuff uh, from this trip uh, next week. And then we can uh, get on to talking about the next trip, as well as all other sorts of interesting stuff that's happening in the world of minor league baseball. And for, you know, you personally, when you showed up, I know you mentioned the, the Nets and, and some of that other stuff, but what stood out most and what do you think was the biggest positive change from 2015 to 2019? Because for some people at the ballpark, that, that change has happened much slowly, much more slowly, um, you know, and much more gradually. You're seeing a photograph from 2015 in your brain comparing it to now. So what stood out most the second you walked in? I mean, right from when you walk in, I think it was the concourse itself, just, um, you know, how all the signage was different, how the concession stands were different. Um, it just had a different flair and energy just in, you know, and just a lot of the aesthetic. You know, Virginia is known for the uh, love signs, you know, big signs that say love. Yeah, right. Virginia is uh, for lovers. Yeah, Virginia is for lovers. And, you know, you can look at a map. Uh, of all the love signs all over the state. And so there's like a love sign right there on the first base concourse. And then on the ends of the concourse, there's a, you know, Kona beach bar down the uh, first base line, you know, patio, uh, social area. And then on the left left field line, there's a, a party deck. So, you know, two... Uh, new social spaces at the ends of the ballpark. You know, it's just the direction a lot of teams have gone in old stadiums if and when they can. You know, you remove the bleacher seating, try to create more social areas and make it a, an area where it's like more fun to get congregate and gather as opposed to going to a ballpark that's, you know, 60, 70, 80 years old and sitting on metal bleachers. Um, it definitely makes for a more uh, dynamic experience. So it was interesting to see. At the end of the day, you know, the stadium was fundamentally the same because you can't change that much about a 70-year-old But within that, there was so much that was different. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. And Ben's Biz blog lives. I almost, <laughs> I almost, almost said in the blog, it's Ben's Biz. I caught myself before I did. Uh, but uh, Ben, what else is coming up? Well, yeah, got some more, uh, a few more stories from the road trip. I'm, I'm uh, 
no spoilers, but I got one uh, running next week that I'm, I'm looking forward to for sure. And I think I'm going to dip my toe back in the promo waters next week and just cover some interesting promotions. Still determining exactly what to do with that. Um, today, well, the deadline will pass if you're listening to this tomorrow on Thursday, but uh, tomorrow I'll be selecting my designated eaters for my next trip. Uh, I got some really good submissions for... Um, Albuquerque, El Paso, and Amarillo. You know, I'd extended the deadline because uh, I hadn't gotten too many for El Paso, but that has changed the last week, so it's always a tough decision. But uh, I'll pick the designated eaters. I'll be announcing them shortly, and uh, that'll be the next road trip, uh, June 12th, I believe. I'll be taking off for the road again. It's all coming up. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show, MILB.TV is where you can catch all the top talent in minor league baseball. Sam, what are you watching this weekend? Yeah, this week is really fascinating from a AAA point of view that we talked about so much at the the top of the show um, because that Reno team that had the crazy game against Tacoma um, is actually facing off at El Paso this week. They, I think they started a series today, here Wednesday. Um, so they'll be there for a little bit. El Paso is a hitter's park. Reno has tons of sluggish. Kevin Crone, Yasmani Tomas, uh, Tim LaCrastro homered today uh, for Reno. So they, they've got plenty to go around and playing in that environment. They're always going to be fun to watch, but El Paso has actually been the better home run hitting team, as Tyler mentioned, in three strikes. Uh, um, Luis Arias is there. He's done really well this year. Shown surprising pop by anybody's standards, never mind AAA standards, never mind his own. Um, So he's always one to watch in that lineup. If you want to watch one of their games, I would recommend Friday. Right now, John Duplantier, uh, top prospect, top pitching prospect in that Arizona system, is scheduled to go to Reno uh, or go for Reno. Duplantier, uh, long been their top pitching prospect, has been up and down between Arizona and Reno this year. Uh, Arizona pretty much brings him up to be a long man out of the bullpen, and he's done fairly well there. Um, But when they don't need the emergency arm, they're allowing him to start at Reno. So this is another chance for him to kind of show off. And, you know, as much as these are big offensive teams in a big offensive environment, Taylor Widener, another top 100 prospect, uh, showed today. Uh, against El Paso, that it is possible to to be a good pitcher there. You just have to throw strikes. You have to keep the ball down. Uh, you have to get lots of swings and misses, as he did uh, with five strong innings for Reno. So no matter what happens on Friday, it's going to be a game to watch, whether it's a slugfest, whether it's Duplantier dominating the Chihuahuas. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. So keep your eye on that game Friday night. Tyler, what are you looking at? Yeah, I'm going to go to the AA Eastern League. And I know that we have uh, we've written about this dude certainly a lot this year. I don't know how much we've gotten a chance to really talk about him or plug his team's games on MILB TV. But uh, Casey Mize, who was the first overall selection for the Detroit Tigers last year uh, out of Auburn, he had what I guess qualifies as a rough outing for Casey Mize in 2019. Uh, back on the 15th of May, he gave up four runs on six hits over five and two-thirds and a no decision against Richmond. Rebounded with six shutout innings his next time out against Hartford uh, to drop his season-long ERA to 1.66 and 14 starts between Class A Advanced Lakeland and Double A Erie. He and Double A Erie will be on the road at Bowie. Uh, or check that, they'll be home against Bowie. 
coming up this weekend, taking on the the Bay Sox, a double-A affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles. But uh, Casey Mize, he is, I mean, I know we talked about him with the, the no-hitter and all that stuff this year, but it's like every time he goes out, he's got a chance to do something really special. And I'm not sure how long we're going to get a chance to talk about him at the minor league level. So another chance to uh, to witness some Casey Mize magic coming up uh, this weekend when Erie takes on Bowie. And that will do it for this week's episode of the show before the show, episode number 210. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.